0: take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. I want to remind you when we reminded you even in our singing this morning that when it comes to salvation, you bring nothing, nothing, nothing to God. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And as much as that causes us this, this internal dialogue that says, well, well, wait a second, what about, or haven't I, and am I a good person? The truth of the matter is we were wretched and broken, yet God in His grace chose to rescue us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and that demands Worship. And that's why we worship, and that's why we sang some of the songs that we sang this morning. It is an amazing grace that reaches into the soul of a wretched man and rescues him from their sin. And it is that gospel that we preach and proclaim. It's that gospel that we make no excuse for. And in Romans chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 16. Where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and did not honor him as god or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of their mortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things therefore god gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves "'Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie "'and worshiped and served the creature "'rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. "'Amen. "'And for this reason, God gave them up "'to dishonorable passions. "'For their women exchanged natural relations "'for those like that are contrary to nature. "'And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women "'and were consumed with passion for one another.' men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves to do penalty for that error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil and disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And in the first verse of chapter 2, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh, man. Father, I'd ask that you might bless us as we reflect upon this passage of Scripture this morning in our introduction to our expository study in Galatians, and a reflection on the true nature of the gospel, the culture that we live and in the culture in which the apostles ministered, for the gospel was given once for all through the apostles. As we stay faithful to that gospel and reflect upon our world today, I pray that you might make some sense of the truth of Romans chapter 1, and I pray that as your people we find our only hope in the power of the gospel through Jesus Christ alone. So encourage us and teach us as we set up the reality of the gospel by reflecting first on the deep need of man to be rescued from themselves and from their sin. So, as we reflect again, may You bless us as we quickly glimpse at this entire chapter and pray that You'll remind us of the things that we've studied thus far. And I pray that there would be a place of, of comfort for those of us who know you, that even in the type of world described in this text that there is hope in Jesus Christ, to that hope we cling and anticipate the promises fulfilled once and forever when we stand in your presence and we take that radically changed gospel Where He takes a soul that is totally depraved and cleanses them of sin forever. May we take that gospel to the world in need, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we reflect upon this truth, we had studied just recently a passage of Scripture in Timothy, what reminds us that there's a culture that is always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. We ask ourselves if they're always learning, if they're always pursuing, if they're always looking for answers. How come they never come to the knowledge of the truth? How come they never see it in its clarity as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1? We recognize and understand that from the early Greek philosophers to to Augustine to Thomas Aquinas— they wrestle with what Paul is saying here. How do people know? What, what, what does it mean that, that it's clear to them and they can clearly see the divine attributes of God and, and creation? What does all of that mean? And although there's much disagreement and debate throughout centuries and centuries of Christendom upon that, what that means, there is this proposed natural law that says that everybody has this innate sense and awareness that there is a God— they had this innate sense and awareness of, of His glory and His goodness, not in a salvific kind of way, but everybody knows. And intuitively, perhaps. They know through, through their cognitive reasoning a gift of God, perhaps. We're not going to debate those details, but we would remind you that even in Romans 2, Paul says the Gentiles who do not have the law— by nature, do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. It wasn't given to them, yet they still understand the components of that law, that there is a lawgiver, and they're accountable to that lawgiver. How, how could that be? They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience always be, also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. As we reflect upon that, that whole discourse of natural law that has happened in Christendom, there's some really interesting things that Aquinas came to, to, to discover or to, to relate to this text. He said that, that God has created us with, with basic good or goods, and He's created us for life and reproduction and etc., etc. This is what it means to live as God's creation— he opines that all people know those realities. All people grasp that reality even outside of Christ. Now, we can debate how they might know that, but we can't debate that Paul makes it very clear in this text that although they are captive by sin, they are culpable for rejecting God because something told them that there is a God and they're not him. How that works out and how that happens is not our intent this morning is to simply say, it happens, and they know, and they are without excuse. Even as apologists wrestled through this in the centuries, Blaise Pascal said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man that cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator." He said, you were created to know him. Aquinas said the same thing. He said that we have been created to seek God, to seek that which is beyond ourselves, the creator of the universe. And even some of the most aforementioned atheists in the culture, John Paul Sartre said, there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of man where the divine used to be. He was an atheist, and he said, I'll never know how to fill that God-shaped vacuum. What a sad state of depravity. Something's missing, but I don't believe in the answer that has been given to me. So Paul, in verse 18, takes us to the bad news that magnifies the good news of the gospel that he speaks in verses 16 and 17. Why is the gospel so glorious? Because you are so horribly broken. And the more broken you understand yourself, the more glorious the gospel gets. He did this for me. He did this for me, Paul says as he writes to Romans. By the way, in the first several chapters... Romans, Paul almost acts like a, an attorney in a court of law in a judicial system where he lays out an indictment. He says, this is what you are. Lays out for us in, in the context of all of that, uh, in, in, in arraignment, and, and then, of course, a, a trial where he concludes in chapter 3 that we're all guilty, every single one of us guilty of what? For the wrath of God, verse 18... Is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, the wrath of God, a settled, determined igni- uh, indignation toward, towards those who, who suppress the truth that there is a God and has created an order to this universe. MacArthur reminds us in his commentary, God's anger is not capricious, it's not an irrational rage, but it's the only response that a holy God could have toward evil. God could not be holy and not be angry with evil. Holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. And the holiness of God has been diluted in many of our evangelical churches today, and the message and the ministry have begun to surround us in our felt needs. And there is no greater need than to be introduced to this holy God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And until you see yourself as you really are, you will never see God as what He really is. Holy, holy, holy. You see how these work in tandem? You see how they work together? The wrath of God upon the evilness of the day that wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness. It is, it is being revealed. There is a present consequence for that ungodliness, and there is a future eternal consequence for that ungodliness. We'll see some of the present consequences in the text itself. Because of why? Because they suppress the truth… And in essence, that is what provokes a holy God to His righteous indignation. I have given you what you need to know that I am. And you suppress it, or you repress it. You hinder, you stifle, you incarcerate it and put it into jail, if you would. You unconsciously live as if it doesn't exist, but you know that it does, and you're constantly trying to suppress that truth. Whatever you make of that, or however you describe it, reflects the reality that the unbelieving world is characterized by obstinate stupidity. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Did you notice the psalm writer didn't say the fool believes in his heart, there is no God? He just says in his heart, I'm going to to live my life like there's no God. And that leads to this obstinate stupidity that characterizes our world today. Why? For what can be known about God's plain to them? Plain. You can know. You can be aware, first, by whatever natural inclination, and, and second, the blanks are filled in. The salvific portion of the knowledge of God is filled in in the context of the Word, He gives us the answers to the deepest questions in life. Who am I and where am I going? He says, I've revealed that to you, but he's revealed to all mankind that he is and that he's holy and that he's righteous. It's plain. It's not obscure in any way. It's so plain that everybody gets it. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Again, we can debate the details, but make no mistake about it. Even the godless world acknowledges that there must be something more. They refuse to acknowledge the answer that is as plain as the nose on their face. There's a God, and you're accountable to him. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. There's a depth in this text that, that escapes us sometimes. As We break it down, we begin to understand that God and his grace, his common grace, has revealed himself through creation and the things that he has made, and concludes that because he has shown himself true, they are without excuse. I'd like to address something here that's a question is often asked in the context of this passage of Scripture. What about the innocent person in some faraway land that never hears the gospel? Are they going to heaven? person who's never heard the gospel, has heard God shout in creation, has been made in the image of God, and they are without excuse. We have to stop using the term innocent. There is no righteous, no, not one. There's nobody that's innocent which means you bring nothing, nothing, nothing to the feet of the Savior. You follow that? What do you mean innocent? That's a silly question. God said, I've made myself known. You say, well, it's not salvific. Yeah, you're right. This natural law or theology, whatever you want to call it, isn't going to save you, but it does tell you that there's a God and you're not Him, and you will be accountable to that God. And how do we know that? Because when you do evil, remember Adam in the garden? Immediately you know, and you seek to hide from God, you reveal that you know. As Paul addresses this and, and lays out his case, he says in verse 21, "For although they did not for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to him." They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Oh, when he talks in his text on natural theology of what you can't not know, says traditionally the authority of natural law has been found in the Creator content and the design he imparted to us, and the power by which we recognize and in the faculty of reason, which is also part of that design, which includes deep conscience as a part of it. Deep down, in some innate kind of intuitive fashion, we know that there's a God. So, although they knew, they did not honor him. In fact, lived in Unbelief and ingratitude became futile, and their thinking foolish, if you would. And their hearts were darkened. What you will find in this text is that spiritual darkness always leads to moral perversity. They are inseparable. Darkness always leads to a darker. And darker and darker and darker and darker place. It's played out every day, the culture that we live. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Human behavior is marked by an irrational disjunction between what man knows to be true and the true state of affairs in a life it is at odds with that knowledge? George Orwell and his novel 1984 speaks of that kind of dystopian society where if you reject this innate, inherent notion, he was no theologian, by the way. It leads to this dystopian state of deprivation and oppression and terror And somebody always fills the void that has been created by rejecting God. And he says in the novel 1984, that's usually the political party that's in control. It's like he was writing for today. You can't live without an ultimate authority. And when you reject that ultimate authority, you must embrace some other form of authority, and that leads to dire dire consequences. So, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. You see that word exchanged? They weren't duped. They weren't tricked. They weren't deceived. They exchanged. It meant they considered the alternatives and decided that they had a better way. They had a better understanding. They didn't like what was revealed to them So they changed it out for what was more appealing to them and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We don't want God. We will erect our own idols, thank you very much. It led Voltaire to remark that God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. We don't like the God that we know we're going to create our own. We don't like the world that he created, so we're going to create our our, our own. We don't like the accountability that is so real and known. We'll create ourselves. Perhaps you've listened to this interesting exchange that was proposed numerous times through history. Nietzsche, who says there is no God and championed the death of God. Nietzsche says to God, I too can create man. And God says to Nietzsche, go ahead and try Nietzsche takes a fistful of dust and begins to mold it, and God says, wait a second, disqualified. Get your own dust. So you reflect upon some of this truth, and you look at this text, what happens? And this exchange is not only do they exchange the truth of God for a lie, they change what can be known, and everybody knows to be true for a lie as well, leads C.S. Lewis to to reflect upon this in his text, The Abolition of Man, and he says there are no new moralities, just the ones that have already and always existed. All the world ever does is to sort something that they borrowed from God you see it in the text with sex and sexuality and marriage and family and all of these things that we see. Therefore, God gave them up. On three separate occasions in this text, you read the phrase, God gave them up. Do you understand how sobering that is? God said, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. If this is what you want, you can have it. Their consciences become seared. Their minds become debased. And the realities play out how they live their life. Theologians sometimes call this judicial abandonment. God says I will remove this understanding from you then doesn't mean that God won't judge them he will simply removes that awareness my heart goes back to Judas Iscariot who dips the sop Jesus says whatever you do do it do it quickly Last time Jesus sees Judas, he says, Go ahead. He never speaks to him again. He was done. He was given over. His heart was sealed for eternal judgment. Torment. And immediately, they turned to the lust of their heart. to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, rejecting any kind of ethic or ethos that comes through the acknowledgment of a Creator. Human dignity is rooted in the fact that God created you in His image. And when you remove that reality in your thinking, all kinds of debauchery follows quickly. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in the context of the sobering passage of Scripture. I hear our government all the time talking about human dignity, but they have nothing to base that on, so they base it on this kind of tribalism or whatever the next hot thing is. It leaves the culture with no mooring of absolute truth and no meaning whatsoever. And it leaves us to create a world to our own sinful desires. And that is exactly what he explains in the text. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the Creator rather than the Creator creation rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. There's a magnification of ungodliness when mankind experiences this judicial abandonment, when God takes His hands off and says, fine, you you do this to your own destruction. There's never an end to the depth of that depravity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They abandon the telos, the design of the Creator, and the commands that come through that. They express their, their fallenness through this moral degeneracy that is captured and encapsulated in, in homosexual union that elsewhere in the Scripture says is abomination to God. Why? Because it defies the created order and the natural law that says there are men and there are women, the end. Full stop. We've created all kinds of evil in our culture today contrary to what has been revealed, contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. (coughs) Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Judicial abandonment does not mean there's not consequences. It means that the voice of conscience and reason is taken out of that sinful man, and God allows them on this path to destruction. But we know that these behaviors that he describes here bring all kinds of real-life consequences, but even worse, there are eternal consequences. Those eternal consequences make them guilty because of the created order that he speaks of in this passage. Men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts and receiving the due penalty. But it gets worse. That ought to cause us to shudder. When they do what ought not to be done, what is not proper and fitting and in harmony with the created order. Even in evangelicalism, pay attention. Even in evangelicalism today, there are those on side A and side B, sides of the argument, that would tell us that even believers can have a homosexual bent or desire and God still still loves them. And out of that camp is those who say, well, yeah, you can be born that way, but you can't act out. And others who say, well, if you're born that way, borrowing from this passage, if you're really born that way, then God's okay with you acting out. And both of those are anathema. They use this phrase, and I've heard other Christians use it for other reasons, and the phrase is simple, only God can judge me. I shudder when I think of that. Only God can judge me in some flippant kind of way. Listen carefully. He will. Don't be flippant about that. These people will stand in the place of judgment. Christians who, who live outside of the created essence and order and the commands of God will face a judgment, thank God, They're secure in Jesus Christ, but don't give me this, only God can judge me. I'll take one giant step back, because it just might be in the form of a lightning bolt, and I don't want to be there. I don't say that to be funny. You understand how dangerous that is? Only God can judge me. Now, isn't it ironic that they know He's going to? Who told him? Who told? Who told them? Creation. Design. The very nature and essence of God. It's not that they were distracted and lost sight of God. They gave due consideration to God and said, no, thank you. We're going to do it our way. And therefore... They were without excuse. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Gives us a litany, a litany of the things that they've done that are wrong. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, evil, Covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Did you ever wonder? why an atheist spends all of the time and energy throughout the days of their life trying to prove that God doesn't exist? Do you understand how foolish that is? I'm not going to spend five seconds trying to prove the Easter bunny doesn't exist. Because it doesn't exist. They know that God does insolent and haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless, looking upon God with contempt because they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. How did they know? He's told you in the text. It is innate. It is Natural It is being a creature with with the cognitive ability and an understanding that there is a God. For although they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval (coughs) to those who practice them. It results in this death spiral into the absurd. That which is wildly unreasonable, illogical, inappropriate, and foolish. When there was still a semblance of the Judeo-Christian ethos in Western civilization, that civilization was built on what we can now call an old morality that commanded compassion and prohibited murder. Murder. But a life in which God is jettisoned justifies the killing of children and the name of compassion. That is not just absurd, that is evil, and they're evildoers. We live in a world today different from the old morality that saw that there was a, an intrinsic difference on every single level between men and women, New morality sees a spectrum of opinions based on personal choice. I shared with you this car that we passed on our way back from Connecticut, where one bumper said, I'm a gender atheist, and the one next to it said, female lives matter. That's absurd. It's not just absurd, it's evil. And these politicians… Who mutilate the like that the bodies of children for this transformation are evil, evil, evil. Oh, Pastor Jim, now you're getting political. You better read the text again. There's no politics about that. Evil, evil, evil. How must God grieve That's the state of affairs of our culture, today? I know you'll think this is political. Oh, well. No one is above the law except those who riot and loot, smash and grab, repeatedly break the law and are released. That's absurd. No, that's evil The acknowledgement that there are no rules until it comes to me, and then there's lots of rules. That's absurd. That's absurd. That is a culture. That is a culture in which we live, a culture devoid of any kind of logic and reason, and a consequence of rejecting God. C.K. Chester just said, men may keep a sort of level of good. There is some commonality. People know how to be kind. but, But man has never been able to keep on one level of evil. That road goes down and down and down. So much so that it leads to this litany of charges. And the denial of absolutes that permeates Western civilization today That ultimately results in despair and absurdity. For some of the greatest minds who rejected the notion that there is a God, it didn't end well. Nietzsche, who pronounced the death of God. Had a mental breakdown and spent the rest of his days in an asylum because if there is no God, he did not have any answers to the biggest questions in life who am I and where am I going? And Ernest Hemingway, who followed the same path, came to the conclusion that there's no other way when life has no meaning than to take your life. And he did in the kitchen of his own home we live in a world that denies the existence of God and the order of creation but also live in this existential angst where if in fact that is true none of this matters and is it any wonder they go mad and manifest their humanity in the ways that is spoken of in the text. Every person is without excuse, because every person, whether a first-century pagan or 20th-century materialist, has been given a knowledge of God and has spurned that knowledge in favor of idolatry and all of its varied manifestations. And all therefore stand under the awful reality of the wrath of God, and all are in desperate need of the justifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will never come to grips with the importance of the gospel. We be motivated as we should to proclaim it until this sad truth has been fully integrated into our own worldview. Unless, or if you were persuaded, well, I thank God I'm not like them. Keep reading in Romans, where he says, oh, you Jews that have the law, you're no different. You're without excuse. You're just as guilty as them. Boy, is that offensive to us. You're just as guilty. Not me. Yes. Yes and yes. So who shall deliver us from this body of death and this terrible situation? Ah, I thank God through Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You know what he means? The only solution is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. You do nothing, nothing, nothing. You stand guilty in the eyes of a holy God, and yet for some unforeseen reason, He's chosen to touch your life. That ought to change everything. And the more you understand, the more you... Realize the holiness and the glory of salvation in Christ. It simply reminds us that I was one of them. Thanks be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the introduction. To our study in Galatians and the truth of the gospel. You say, that's a bummer, Pastor Jim. What in the world? You'll never understand the gospel until you see your sin. You'll never understand how glorious it is until you see how broken you were. And you'll never know the truth until you see the lie. And only God can do that. Thank God the Holy Spirit, he has brought us to salvation in Christ alone. Now we must take that message and we must get it right because look at the condition of the world. Father, bless us. Change us first. And may the glorious gospel do what only you can do through that gospel of the ministry of your Son. We were all guilty, yet... So I'm saved in Christ alone. We are fighting an eternal battle of good versus evil. And nobody is without excuse. Help us to to at least initiate conversations with that reality. Remind us that salvation is beyond ourselves. Uh, forgive us from thinking that somehow if we do this better and do this right, more people will get saved. Remind us that this is all entailed in the plan of God for the universe. We bring nothing, nothing, nothing. We take nothing, nothing, nothing. Save the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and forever. Amen.